at that point, your mind's going all kinds of different directions. You know, it, you, you've got to, because you, you do not expect a 19 year old girl to be involved in this incident. I mean, I would not, walking into that house, that is not who I would have expected to be involved here. I, I know I was thinking, why was she at this house? You know, had he done something to her? Had she been, you know, there's a, there's a lot of things that were at play here that really piqued our interest. Warning. The podcast you're about to listen to may contain graphic descriptions of violent assaults, murder, and adult language. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome to the Murder Police Podcast, The Murder of Ronald Browning, Part 2 of 4. We did feel pretty quickly that she was not involved, but we also had some other family members that were brought to our attention. Actually, while we were on scene, prior to, I think, interviewing, a granddaughter showed up, and she was adamant that she wanted to get inside. She was concerned about getting money that you know, she thought would be hers. And I think Rexana also mentioned to us about possibly a suspect of the, the granddaughter, or the, yeah, the granddaughter's uh, boyfriend. Interesting. I think for the listeners, what they're probably catching on in these investigations, too, is that victimology, right? Assessing risk factors, because that's going to direct you. And then for the investigator is working close and central to that victim and working your way out. And then what you hit on, and I I really like is, I've always said is that when you get people you're looking at, to me, it was always, you got to get them in or get them out. Because if they linger, it just gets in the way. And that's why I came back and asked one more time on that, because that's super critical to try to take somebody out of the picture if they don't belong so you can move on. Not always easy, but it's a And I think deal. that's one thing that we've, we've learned and we, we've done, did well in this case, is we kept an open mind. I mean, we went into it looking for who, what suspect fit this, this type of crime and why this would happen to the victim, but we didn't let you know, the belief that it most likely be a family member or would be someone close to the victim. We kept an open mind of that. And ultimately, I mean, I don't know that we would have ever picked this suspect out, you know, had we not continued to, to just, you know, not focus on one person, not get blindsided. And, and we kept an open mind and, and were able to ultimately find out who was responsible. Yeah. To me, that whole scene would make you stay open minded. I mean, a gallon of milk that's been drunk with blood on it and all that. I mean, I'm I'm sitting there a four on my brow listening. I, it's uh, just bizarre. Well, there's things like there was a milk and magnesia bottle in the bathroom that clearly had been drank. There was clothing, like I mentioned, in, in the uh, washing machine that, after speaking with Miss Browning, did not belong to her and was not in the washing machine prior. And as he described, I mean, the pull-down attic access was down. You could see where someone clearly went up there and, and laid. There was blood. Upstairs, there was furniture turned over in other bedrooms, so it appeared to us that someone had searched this residence and had spent a considerable amount of time in the residence. Yeah, were things open, drawers open, clothing disheveled out of them, and stuff like that. To that degree, was it ransacked? Oh, absolutely. There was closets gone through. Every drawer in the house practically had been gone through. A couple other things of note: 
you know, one of the things that we determined pretty early on is, is that the majority of this blood was not actually the victim's. His, the scene related to violence of the victim was pretty limited in that living room. So we were pretty confident that our, our suspect was injured, and not only injured, but injured pretty severely. Arterial or something that was spurting. I mean, there was lots of blood spatter throughout the house. Appeared to us from previous cases that we had that most likely it was some type of injury, and it, as the heart beats, you know, it just continues. And it was, it was all over the house. The ceilings, the, I mean, I mean, the amount of blood is really hard to comprehend without seeing it. Unreal. Unreal. So they start processing the scene. You've, you've uh, eliminated the wife. And then the granddaughter shows up and wants in the house and is really interested about material things in the wake of this, right? Is that something that gets your eyebrow to go up when you hear that? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And I actually spoke to her in front of the residence and, and her, she was pretty uh, set that she wanted to get in that house, particularly to a safe that was in the basement. She didn't really specify what items she was after, but it was that she wanted to secure these before it became arguable between she and this, this new wife. So it certainly piqued our interest, you know, and I think had things not developed over the next hour or so, we would have been going down that road uh, and, and been looking into that a lot more. Absolutely. Yeah, you said new wife. What, what's the relationship? Is that bleed into this or how how long was the new wife in the picture they had not been together i I think a year and a half in total at that point they had met in church and and married after that he had known her for 14 years prior to that but his wife had passed away uh and he he ended up marrying rexana okay good deal where do we go from here well you know one of the things that we noticed ourselves but also was reported to us from the crime scene response team is there were some Aside from the milk jug and things like that, one particular item that really stood out was there were braided hair pieces, long, probably 18-inch braided hair pieces throughout this crime scene, probably somewhere in the area of four to five different pieces. Uh, and some of those were so close to the victim that they were commingled with his blood. They were beneath his body. It, it was one of those kind of really piques your interest, you know, you, you don't know what to make of that. So that was one of the things that we really wanted to try to figure out. And we spoke to Rexana about that. She there again had no idea how to, how to explain that. Uh, and as you'll see, that obviously that come, becomes really important later on. But it was something that we were going to follow up on. Yeah, every time you all go a little further, it's something else bizarre in that house. I'm, I'm really flabbergasted by it. Yeah, those... Braids were something. I mean, like I said, there was four or five. They were all, if I remember correctly, all in the living room. Mm-hmm. One was under the victim's body. It was clear to us from a little bit deeper examination of the victim that he had fought. And this was a violent attack, but he had fought back. We didn't know. We thought that the victim or the suspect was injured. We weren't sure how that happened. We would later learn. He mentioned the glass jar. Of the large change jar, a lot of people do. They they have a, a big glass jar. They just throw their change in. That had been used to attack him. And then, I believe there was a, a candle warmer or tart warmer, tart burner. Yes, that yeah. you know had severe damage to it. There was a TV turned over. It was clear there would have been a violent struggle in this living room. Let me go into this too, just uh, because I'm not familiar with West Virginia. But how does the coroner and medical examiner system work here? Where where do they get involved in? Because obviously you'll have a post-mortem examination, but how's that? how do they step in? 
We have a local coroner uh, in the in the regional area that comes to the scene of our any kind of homicide case or any equivocal death. That's typically someone that's appointed by the medical examiner's office. They received additional training, and they kind of get that first impression from the scene, and then they relay that information to our medical examiner's office, and, and all of our homicide victims are transported to Charleston for further examination. Interesting. So uh, unlike in Kentucky, Kentucky coroners are elected, but they still get fantastic training. They actually get very good death investigation training. So, But here they're actually appointed by a, a sitting medical examiner, correct? Yes, yeah. Gotcha. They work from the medical examiner's office in Charleston, yeah. yeah. Now, as investigators, do you all actually, or do you send somebody from the PD to attend the autopsy? Yes. Yeah, we, we typically, the lead investigator is typically responsible for attending the autopsy when, when necessary. Uh, did you attend to that one? I did, yes. Okay, good deal. And was that like how many days after? It was the following day, yeah. And that's where he started getting more information about putting together what the fact that, for example, I guess it ruled out a gunshot, correct? Yeah, you know, we learned a few things from that particular autopsy that really stood out to us. Uh, there again, as, as David stated, you know, you could tell there had been an extreme level of violence involved here. The, the bludgeoning had, had reached a level that it actually fractured his skull. There were pieces of the skull missing. You could, the portions of his brains were exposed. And also, we found some injuries that we were a little surprised. You know, when they took his shirt off, he had some, some bad injuries to uh, his rib area. And we didn't know the significance of that at that point. We later found out some information that, that uh, explained that. But you could tell that he had been through a horrible, horrible attack. I believe he had some broken, broken ribs. He did, yes. And then yeah. there was signs of manual strangulation and, I believe, ligature strangulation as well. So, there were, I mean, the, the level of, of injury was pretty severe. And it emphasizes the importance of, of a good postmortem to have that stuff on the table because you're going to go there, I'm pretty sure. But, yep. my Lord, that's, that's important stuff to know as you move forward. Good deal. Hopefully, I didn't interrupt and get you out of out oh, track no. with those questions. Yeah. But granddaughter shows up, weird questions, wants to get to a safe. That, that's an eyebrow raiser for sure, not crazy. So, where do we go from here? Well, you know, there again, that certainly piqued our interest. And I think that, uh, I think David would agree at that point, you know, I, we would probably have gone down that trail. But, you know, you come to a point in these cases, especially with one that's, that's this equivocal is kind of, you can't quite piece together what's going on here, where you kind of have a brainstorm session. And Dave and I went back to, to our office and began to talk about this, began to talk to other officers about this. And that led to some really interesting developments. One of the things that we determined is we discovered that a 19-year-old girl had been reported missing earlier in the day. Really wouldn't be significant in any other, any other situation, but one of the things that we determined is the officer told us that when she went missing, she was in the process of having her hair braided. Obviously, that piques our interest immediately. So we look into that report. We find out that 19-year-old Camille Brown has been reported missing earlier in the day. Her mother reported that they had been in the process of braiding her hair, that Camille had, the mother had left the room. Camille had suddenly got up, walked out the front door, left her phone, all her belongings at the house, and just never returned. And that was much earlier in the day. And the location of that was less than, I mean, it's the next street over from Odessa, so it was on Westwood Drive. 
and from where she went missing, you can almost see the victim's house. I mean, the measurement as the crow flies is less than, a, I mean, I, it's probably a half mile, if that. Oh, yeah. A few hundred yards. A few hundred yeah. yards, man. I mean, it's pretty close. So that, that piqued our interest. And then the, the hair braid braiding aspect of it was pretty interesting too. Well, and you, let's, let's say like that you didn't have those other things. What I'm thinking from doing these too is a 19 year old that walks away from all of those things in and of itself, that investigation, as far as a missing person, would probably come a little closer to the front burner because of the fact that communication devices are left behind. I mean, do you see where I'm going? Oh, is absolutely. It, yes. it wouldn't be your run-of-the-mill thing because, you know, when you're looking at missing persons, and we've actually done some episodes on missing person investigations because some people don't understand why the police just don't go out and hunt everybody down, right? But I'm thinking in my mind right there that if, if I'd pulled that case— that that one would have started just alone on that would have been kind of bizarre, too, of, of walking away from a phone, because that's weird for people to do that. Cool. And she, uh, I, th- I think the family, as most missing person families do, they waited a period of time before they called the police. So she'd actually been missing, if I remember correctly, about eight hours. And then it was probably around four-something when the family actually reports it to the police. So they were in the process. They had just cleared that missing person initial call. When we come back and we're you know, brainstorming and talking about this, and luckily that officer was there completing that report, and, and things started to fall into place. That's called serendipity. I yeah. mean, we can call it luck, too, because we'll, I'll, I'll be the first, and you all will agree, is that it's not always because we're geniuses. It's because luck does. But the Absolutely. idea that those paths crossed for just a minute to be able to say, oh, by the way, with that kind of detail. Wow. Oh, Absolutely. Yeah. And I, I don't know about Dave, but, uh, you know, at that point, your mind's going all kinds of different directions. You know, it, you, you've got to you, – because you do not expect a 19-year-old girl to be involved in this incident. I mean, I would not – walking into that house, that is not who I would have expected to be involved here. I, I know I was thinking, why was she at this house? You know, had he done something to her? Had she – you know, there's a, there's a lot of things that were at play here that really piqued our interest. Yeah, we'll keep going. I don't want to interrupt too much, but one of the questions I had is the first logical thing is connection. You know, where are we on our victimology? But I don't want to jump ahead and take you off the train ride. So, Well, as, as serendipitous as that was, you know, there's actually another moment in this same interaction where we find out some more information. One of the other things that we determined is that some of the officers had heard our conversations and they had heard certain parts of the conversation and heard that we were talking about braided hair and, and a, and a of a 19-year-old female, and they reported to us that they had overheard the dispatch of a call in a neighboring jurisdiction, a very small jurisdiction nearby called Mabscott, that a, a young female with braided hair had forced her way into some homes there and had subsequently been arrested, and she was now at one of our local hospitals. So obviously at that point, that really sets things, uh, sets things ablaze, and we really want to find out more information about that. And that's what really led us to discovering Camille Brown. Yeah. And again, that, that personal communication, the overhearing, the talking. I think people sometimes when they look at police departments think we have these, uh, and sometimes we've got good things, but they, I think they have, we have these big brainiac information systems where all that data is in there. And it just isn't. You know, it's on voice recordings at best. But again, to have the fortune of somebody overhearing something like that and relaying information, that's critical. And I think one thing that played into this and into all of our investigations is, as you know, Dave, a lot of times in police departments, information is held in silos. And you have units that don't speak to each other, that don't talk to each other. 
we have worked extremely hard to make sure that information flows back and forth between us, patrol, uh, narcotics units, all of our different task forces. And that type of information is, is crucial when you have an investigation like this because so many times patrol officers, officers have the information that helps us solve crimes. And if we didn't have those relationships, even in a small department, I mean, you know, the bigger apartments, I can, it, it gets hard. But even in a department our size, that can definitely happen. But it's good to have the relationships. And you know, I think that played a big part here. And I think you have to be intentional in leadership to have that paradigm set for sure because it can be kept. Well, let's look at 9-11 without going into too much detail, but one of the biggest criticisms over 9-11 is even at the federal agency level, there was literal no communication, there were silos, and then that there was disconnect from local agencies too. And maybe we've gotten better about that, I don't know, but that's a good, that's a hat tip to Beckley that you have that culture because that's not everywhere. It certainly benefited us here, that's for sure. You know, at that point, one of the things that we really wanted to do is, is talk to Camille. You know, that's the next step in this investigation. You know, I, I think at that point, all these stars were aligning, and we did not uh, give really a whole lot more thought at that point to the other suspects. We wanted to find out more about this Camille Brown connection. So Dave and I responded to our Raleigh General Hospital in, in hopes that we could speak with her. I remember walking in there uh, and seeing her. She was uh, right we moved the curtain back, and she was seated in this little area, and she was just violent and, and just distraught and had some very severe injuries to her hands, which obviously was very interesting to us because, you know, we knew that we had a suspect that had shattered this glass. Uh, we knew that they had bled throughout this residence so profusely. So we expected to see some severe trauma to those hands. And then when we did, I mean, it, the light bulbs just went off, you know, that that piqued our interest. And we also noticed that she had the identical braided hair that we had that we had found at the crime scene. How many hours are we in from uh, victim discovery to the, this revelation? You know, at that point, I, I, what, I'd say two, at that point, maybe two hours from the time that we had arrived on scene to there. Yeah, I'd say two, two or three. three. Yeah. yeah. It wasn't long. I mean, we had, we'd interviewed the granddaughter uh, somewhat. we had interviewed the, the wife and I think probably, so I'd say three hours. We're at Raleigh General. We walk in. She's very combative with the doctors, combative with the nursing staff. And then the injury, you know, one finger, as I, I'll never forget seeing it, but it was almost severed. And, and it was severe damage to the finger. But she did not appear to be in pain from that. Now you would never know it. Yeah, exactly. And when you're talking, did they have a restrained and all that good stuff, or were they just kind of holding her down? Or They were holding her down. They, they were, I think they were trying to treat her. Mm -hmm. and, I mean, it was to the point to where she'd kicked a nurse, kicked a doctor, and I think they'd done everything they medically could do at that point just to release her, you know, be able to AMA her pretty much and release her because she was, I mean, just creating disturbance. She was under arrest. They didn't want that, you know, in the hospital was creating quite a scene. So at that point, they, they release her. And one thing we didn't notice and, or didn't realize until later, our victim said he was a pastor. He, he worked as a chaplain at this same hospital. She was wearing a Raleigh General Hospital jacket at the time, which we later would learn came from that residence. At that point, we, I don't think we knew the relevance of the jacket, but she had a Raleigh General jacket on when we get there. The Mapscott police officers are with her. Then ultimately, they go to, to transport her to the jail uh, once she was cleared from the hospital. 
Uh, stars aligning. I think yeah, you said it best. Absolutely. Yeah, go ahead, Dan. This is great. Well, you know, procedurally, it was a it was an interesting situation. It was a little unique for us because you know we want to talk to Camille, but she's also been involved in these crimes in Mapscott. She's she's their prisoner. They were fairly new officers, young guys. Uh, one of them, I think, it was his first day. Actually, the other had been there, uh, I think, a matter of months. So they were not very experienced. Like I said, it's a very small agency of Mapscott. Uh, they did a great job that night, as best as as they were able to. That. But it's usually a three, two, three man department. So we wanted to help. You know, that was probably our biggest part. We just want to help. You know, we obviously want to talk to her at some point, but right now we're not worried about that. We're not going to try to talk to her because I also don't want to delay her presentment to a magistrate or anything of that sort. So we we just asked them, kind of pled with them, let us help you. At that point, she was removed from the hospital. The hospital did not want to treat her any longer. She, Like he has said, she had actually kicked one of the doctors. He, he didn't want to treat her anymore. So we knew with the extensive injuries that she had to her hands that it was not likely that she was going to get accepted to our local jail. But it's a process that has to be attempted. So Mavscott PD was going to transport her to the jail. As we removed her from the hospital, brought her to the parking lot, she went crazy. And became extraordinarily violent. We had to wrestle her. We had to hold her down. And what probably the more disturbing part of that is, at this point in time, her family has been made aware that Camille's been brought to the hospital. They don't know the details. They know that she's been involved in something in Mavscott and that the police have, have her in custody and that she's been brought to the hospital. They certainly don't know about the crime that we're investigating. So they all come to the hospital. And just like any family would do with a missing person, They are now being reunited with Camille, and here we are holding her down, wrestling her, fighting her in the middle of this parking lot. It was a horrible situation. They kind of, the crowd surrounded us. Uh, We had people trying to interject and be involved, and we're trying to keep them back. We're trying to get her into a cruiser to get her out to the jail. It was a very chaotic scene. I think we call that a hot mess. Absolutely. Yeah, Yeah, that'd be Two, uh, something else you hit on that, that listeners don't understand the challenge in policing is when you have somebody that's injured, is jails for the right reasons, don't want to take custody of them unless it's been treated completely. And we understand that completely. So that was funny when you said that was the next challenge that you knew what the end was going to be. But holy moly, with the family descending on you at the hospital, well, we don't know what's that like anyway. If you have a shooting victim and the family comes and then that's a colossal mess in and of itself. And then you've got them on your back. Crazy. Well, and I think this was unique because you're looking at it from their perspective and, and they're looking, our daughter's been missing and now Absolutely. she's found and you police officers are holding her down and violent, you know, there's violence being happening here. And uh, so they had every right to be upset. Amen. And had, yeah. Uh, you know, at that point we wanted to get her into a cruiser. Mapscott Police Department pulled a cruiser nearby. They opened the door, and I looked in, and they did not have a partition. And we were not excited about that prospect because, like I said, she was extraordinarily violent. We did not anticipate that going well. So we asked them, allow us to get you a car, Beckley PD Cruiser, with a partition. Let us transport her for you. And they agreed to that. So what we did is we ended up having an officer pull in there. We loaded her into the cruiser, took her out to the jail. And uh, got her inside, and as you might expect, like I said earlier, the the jail observed those injuries, and they said, "No way, it's yeah. not not gonna not gonna accept custody of somebody with those severe injuries without further treatment." 
So, you know, I would say oh, this is pr where it probably got one of the more chaotic parts of our evening. Me, me and Dave here were, we wanted to help him again. Now, at this point, our cruiser has already left. This partitioned cruiser is already gone. So Mavscot PD, we said, let us get them, get, get them back out here. We'll get you a cruiser. And they, they, they didn't want that. They said, let's, she's our prisoner. Let's let her, let's get her to, to a, a different hospital for treatment. So we said, well, at, at the very minimum, let us follow you. We'll follow you out there. Let's, let's just make sure everything's safe. Now, as we leave the jail, pulling down this little stretch, a little hillside to leave to get on airport road there. And we just see this cruiser in front of us just wildly dart across the road, almost into the oncoming lane, almost over the hillside. And, and we're thinking, what in the world has just happened? Hey, you know there's more to the story, so go download the next episode like the true crime fan that you are. The Murder Police Podcast is hosted by Wendy and David Lyons and was created to honor the lives of crime victims so their names are never forgotten. It is produced, recorded, and edited by David Lyons. The Murder Police Podcast can be found on your favorite Apple or Android podcast platform, as well as at MurderPolicePodcast.com, where you will find show notes, transcripts, information about the presenters, and much, much more. We are also on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube, which is closed captioned for those that are hearing impaired. Just search for the Murder Police Podcast and you will find us. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe for more and give us five stars and a written review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you download your podcast from. Make sure to subscribe to the Murder Police Podcast and set your player to automatically download new episodes so you get the new ones as soon as they drop. And please tell your friends. Lock it down, Judy.